Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome to the second story, the continuation of Master Wenhyo and Wisang in their journey into Tang, China. This story is called Everything Comes from the Mind. While attempting to enter the Tang dynasty through the border of Koryo and China, Wanyo and Wisang were again detained, this time by Koryo soldiers. However, they successfully escaped and returned to Shilla during the time they were being transported to a city in which is now North Korea. The two monks were determined to seek the truth and study the profound teachings of Buddha. They risked their lives attempting yet again to enter the Tang dynasty. This time, however, they decided to take the ocean route and arrive by boat. They traveled to the western coastline, headed for the port city that led to the Tang. Shilla, which was in the eastern region of the Korean peninsula, had managed to secure a western sea route to the Tang. In doing so, they had waged fierce battles with Koryo and Baekje, which occupied the northern and western regions of the peninsula. With grave sacrifices, Shilla had managed to capture a small port in the Kyunggi-do province. Huanyu and Wisang walked westward toward this port for over 10 days. One night near sundown, the two monks were walking along a treacherous mountainous path. They were physically exhausted and extremely famished as they had run out of food and water. There was not a single village in sight. Suddenly dark clouds gathered and rain began falling in torrents. Earth-shattering thunder and lightning ripped through the heavens. Wisong said, Oh no, Sunam, this is terrible. You're right. No matter how far we walk, the ocean still hasn't appeared. Now we've been overcome by this rainstorm. Not a single house in sight. We are indeed in big trouble. Wanyu and Wisong lost their sense of direction in the torrential rain, which is accompanied by thunder, lightning, and approaching darkness. Wisong said, Sunam, we are in terrible trouble. Not knowing the proper direction is one thing, but now we can't even tell what's just ahead of us. What can we do? Hold on to my straps, straps tightly on my bag and follow closely. Let's go find shelter. It was nearly impossible for them to find shelter in the dark and treacherous pouring rain. As lightning and thunder ripped through the sky, Huanyo saw something. Hey, Wisong, follow me. I think I see an entrance to a cave up ahead. Huanyo soon pushed ahead, wallowing in the muddy water with Wisong just behind him. When they managed to forge a little ahead, they did in fact discover a small cave. Huanyo soon fumbled and crawled his way into the cave, and Wisong followed after him. Wanyu Sunam said, It's a small place, but if we take shelter here for a while, we can at least save our lives. 
Oh, brother, now that we are in this cave, I feel like we've escaped hell and entered heaven. Yes, outside the cave is heaven that's turned to hell, and inside the cave is hell that's turned to heaven. Despite the heavy rain outside and the continuous thunder and lightning, the two monks fell asleep inside the small cave, completely exhausted. For an unknown length of time, the two slept. Later, when Wan Hyosunum awoke, he could not remember where he was, but out of habit he fumbled above his head and grabbed something that felt like a small bowl. Wanyo delightedly gulped down the water in the bowl without another thought. As he took a deep breath in relief, he saw Venerable Wisong also searching for water in a sleep. Wanyo awoke him and handed him the water bowl. You are parched with thirst. Here, drink this water. Venerable Wisong took the bowl and gulped down the water. Wow, this water is sweet as honey. I'll place the bowl here beside us. Drink more when you get thirsty. Again, the monks fell into deep slumber. It was Wisang this time who awoke the next morning. Looking around the cave, he shook Wanyo. Oh no, Sunam, please get up. Huh? Huh? What's the matter? Oh, dear brother, we're not inside a cave, but a tomb. What? A tomb? Take a look around. These are skeletons. Oh my. Wanyo looked around, and it also occurred to Wisang. They thought of a bowl they had drunk from the previous night and were speechless. Sunam, isn't that a skull by your side? What? A skull? There was, in fact, a human skull beside them. The water we drank last night was from this skull. The water I drank was from this skull. With that being said, Wisang Sunam began to vomit, followed by Wanyo. The moment the two monks discovered that the water they had drunk was from the skull, they couldn't keep from gagging. Suddenly, Huanyo stopped and began to laugh fanatically. Ho, 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 what's going on? Hey, listen to me, we sung, stop puking. I see it now. It says in the scriptures, when mind arises, all phenomena arise. When mind disappears, all phenomena also disappear. Therefore, everything in the world is only a creation of our minds. What do you mean it is a creation of our minds? Vomiting a moment ago, Wanyu was now smiling brightly, and Venerable Wisang looked on in wonder. Hey there, Wisang. Yes, older brother. Last night I was fumbling for water as I always do when sleeping. I then found the bowl and happily gulped the water down, and I made you drink it also. Yeah. We sung soon and began to vomit again. While rubbing We Sung's back soothingly, Wan Yo said, Wake up, brother. The water we drank last night is neither our, in our mouth now or in our throat. We only began to vomit upon seeing the skull this morning. When we discovered it, we began to vomit. That's my exact point. When we thought it was water in a bowl, it tasted so sweet like honey. But after we saw that the water was from a skull, we began to vomit. How is that not delusion of the mind? Then let me ask you, Sunam. Please let me finish. 
Everything in this world depends on mind. Feeling joy or distress, or believing that something is pure or impure, comes from the mind. Thus, feeling hot or cold also depends on the mind. Therefore, the Buddha taught that everything is created by mind alone. I think I have an idea of what you are trying to say, but let's head to the port now. Daylight has come. I won't be going. What do you mean you're not going? We sung, you take the boat cross to the Tang Dynasty. I'll be heading back to Shilla. What? What are you talking about? You're going to give up studying in Tang? Yes, there is no Dharma outside of our minds. How would I find it externally? The Dharma we are searching for is not possessed by a unique person or present in special places. The Dharma we seek and the way of Buddha are found in our own minds. Now that I've realized that, I don't need to go to the Tang. That may be so, but I cannot give up studying in Tang. We sung, I wish you a pleasant journey. I'll now be going back to Shilla. This is the story of how Master Wanyo drank out of a skull and attained enlightenment. It's been 1,300 years since Master Wanyo, who gave up studying the Tang, and he is considered to be the first and most preeminent Buddhist master in Korean Buddhist history. Korea, they've actually, it's legendary, like almost every Korean uh, Buddhist or otherwise knows the story of Wanhyo Sunam. Mm. They even made a movie out of it. It's all in Korean. I saw it once, uh, but of course I couldn't, they didn't have even subtitles, so I, I knew the story, so I just watched it. But. Yeah, it's hard to know what to say. The story really speaks for itself. As you were reading it, I was reflecting on just my own mind, even as early as this morning, uh, discerning a particular situation being negative. Mm -hmm. And it brought home that I was seeing through the eyes of a negative person. So it came from my mind. There's no two ways about it. And I, what's, I think, very powerful about this story and this teaching is that it really places the responsibility for my own happiness squarely on my shoulders. And in a way, it's very empowering because if I am, if there's something outside of me that I can, that could be blamed, for example, for my own unhappiness or lack of peace or understanding, then there's really nothing I can do about it directly. I'm, I'm a victim. You're powerless. I'm powerless. But if this teaching that everything comes from my own mind, if this is the teaching, which in 
my moments of clarity, yes, absolutely, that's correct, then I am now in a position to take full responsibility for my life. And I have the ability to, to be living um, a completely fulfilled life. Or not. It's up to me. Yes, of course. And who would you want it to be up to? <laughs> well, that's right. I don't want it to be up to anybody else. I mean, I don't want to be a victim. Um, so I guess that's what comes up for me and what I'm able to express after hearing that story. Well, I think that uh, I can literally pinpoint when I first heard that come out of a teacher's mouth, and it was 1975 in a yoga teacher's course in Grassy Creek, uh, California. Swami Vishnadevananda was uh, giving us a lesson on something, and he, what came out of his mouth with is, everything comes out of your own mind. And it just was like a blast. I was like, oh my God. And, uh, you know, oftentimes you hear something like that and you only take it seriously for a short period of time. But what really happened to me in the next uh, short time is that uh, because I felt like I had done enough yoga and I had read all kinds of wonderful things about life after what this particular Swami calls self-realization, but that I didn't target that that self-realization was also going to come from my own mind mm -hmm. until I, I took up Zen practice. And it was years later, I can't, I can't pinpoint exactly when, but because it's happened a few times. And one of those times, you were present, I think, when uh, Sasaki Roshi uh, essentially made the same teaching, but he made it in a very interesting way, which I've expressed to our community a few times, and it goes like this, that at night almost everyone dreams, and initially the dream is completely unified. In other words, there's no difficulty with the dream, right? And then suddenly I appear in the dream and I see it, and I think that of it as something that isn't me. So I can be scared by it, or I can be happy about it, or I think find it interesting, or all those things. And then I wake up in the morning, and I recognize that it wasn't real, it was actually a dream. Mm. So that's a, to me, that's a beautiful metaphor for our lives. Yeah. Like, this world that we live in is the result of our individual dreams for the world. Right. And that's why we, the teaching is that you can't really save anyone else 
until you've saved yourself. Because in order to save yourself, it means you have to recognize exactly where the problem lies, as you've outlined today. So I think it's a beautiful metaphor. And sometimes when I talk to people, I say, <clears throat> how do you recognize a dream? Well, just ask, does it have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Like, we're taking tea and doing a podcast. And we're, I don't know, a third of the way into it now. And, but eventually we'll get to the middle and eventually we'll get to the end. That makes this podcast impermanent. So when we look at what's impermanent in the world, we can't find anything that is not. Which means that the whole world that we perceive through our five senses in our mind is a dream. Yeah. So then you could say, well, isn't the Zen Center a dream? And my answer to that is 100% dream. The difference in this dream is it's designed to help you wake up from the dream. Right. And then make a beautiful world. It, even if it's just in a small way, you make things, you shine your corner of the world as you wrote about uh, the, the development of the Zen Center and the green roof and so forth. Yeah. What a beautiful idea when people create beautiful things through art and literature and just their own hard work, building yeah. a simple chair or bench for somebody. It doesn't have to be a magnificent piece of furniture, but something that's crafted by people in their own way. Yeah. You know? So I, I think you, I had a question come up and then you answered it and a minute or two ago you were saying that we can't save anyone else until we have saved ourselves. And I think that is a, an expression that is very common within Buddhist culture that, you know, to save all beings, we vow, um, for example, at the end of all of our meditations, that we vow to save ourselves and to save all beings. And the word save has often not resonated with me because I think there is so much subtlety um, that we are attempting to translate in a very figurative way between the East and West. So I'm not quite sure if what is implied when we use the word save to a lot of people in the, in the Christian sense of you know being saved by God or uh, having a savior. <clears throat> and one thing that occurred to me last <clears throat> night as I was reading a friend's blog who has a Zen center, there was a, a different translation used and it was to teach or to guide all beings. And so I was going to ask you, what do you mean when you use the word hmm. save? What That's do you good. mean? But I think you good answered point. your own question when you said <clears throat> that you are awakening. And so in this case, it occurs to me that to wake up is to be saved. Well, I think that it's is a that little... right? Yes, it's right as far as it goes. So <clears throat> who's doing the chanting of, that, of the, those verses? The people that have not yet awakened. 
right? Mm-hmm. I see. So they're chanting to save all beings. But once you awaken, you recognize there's no saving at all that goes on because there, there aren't all, there, all beings are also impermanent. What we call all beings are impermanent. And so saving yourself is saving everybody. And when you say, when you use the word save, you are saying to Wake awaken. Up. Right. So we right. could use the, those words interchangeably. Yeah. Or, 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 or saving people from unnecessary suffering, uh-huh. which is going to be uh, the likelihood if you put all of your stock, so to speak, in an in, impermanent world that's going to have an impermanent outcome ending with a death that's going to be uh, unsatisfying because it's going to be something that you're you're regretting mm-hmm. that you get to that point. And as as the people I've been around, they have a lot of regrets if if what they're um, <clears throat> with their impending death. There's no reason at that point for even the biggest liars in the world not to be truthful. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing now to save anymore. You're, you're, you're going. And when you hear about, at least read about, I haven't really been at the death site of an awakened being, but I've read countless stories of it. I'm going to read one in one of these podcasts about how Man Gong Sunam died. And there's, it's, it's a just, it's so natural part of living. Mm. It's as natural as living. And the reason that it is that way because uh, he's living according to the truth mm. and he dies with the truth. And many masters have said in the past that don't cry or weep for me. It's as if you, I know you don't know where you're going yet, but if you're thinking that I don't, you're not my disciples, mm. that kind of thing. Don't uh, don't bother with me afterwards. Don't collect shari from my cremation and go through all kinds of aggravation uh, on my behalf because I've now uh, realized the truth. Well, thank you. So the relationship there is, if I could continue to open that up, when we are conceptualizing about saving ourselves and thereby saving others. We could say that by waking up, by awakening to the truth of our existence, to by waking up to the reality that everything comes from our own mind, we are saving ourselves because we are no longer bound to the illusion of having of being only this limited mm, self mm. that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. So although we still have a life, we still have a self, we still have to deal with, you know, the, the difficulties, the joys, and the sorrows of, of life, it isn't um, that there, the, the picture is much larger. That's a mm. small part of it. You're absolutely right. And I just want to point out something to you. Um, Well, two things. One is that if I recognize that you and I are 
at our root one. Yeah. And that your image and what I perceive is something that's impermanent. But it doesn't mean that during the time that it's you're alive, that when you're with somebody who's alive, then you can have a wonderful time, whether like like some of these great saints that begged on the street with their best friend and so forth. Like that that all is the beauty of our uniqueness as this impermanent self. Hmm. But if it's if functioning without awakening, it's not very it's not a very pretty picture. It includes very few people in the picture. Hmm. And it's usually a picture that includes getting a lot for yourself, mm. more than, 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 than maybe somebody else. Now, the, other, the second point is, when you go to a place like Sudoksa, and we've had you know, several of our members over the years have gone there. The most recent are you and Ancham and Sojong, you for the uh, multiple times, and they for their first time. And they can say nothing that's not positive about the place. Now, does that mean everybody's awakened there? No. What it means, somebody's awakened and people are listening to them, so their behavior is awa- appears to be awakened even before their awakening. Mm. And their ability to help us, for example, as guests at the temple, uh, is a priority. Right. Like whatever uh, shows up at the front gate becomes your priority. Yeah. Not like, what can I get from these people from Detroit Zen Center? No, that's not it at all. Interesting. What can we, what, what can we provide for them? And, and it's being provided from literally from the top down, not just from the current situation, mm-hmm. but the history. What's up on my wall, Mangong Sunam? Before him, Pyakjosunam, Kyunghasunam, all of those were guiding hand through awakened teachers. And the result was that the behavior now has been institutionalized over 1,500 years. So you know when you come as a young person, this could be anywhere, that you behave as if you're awakened. Right? And how many times have I said, behavior always comes first? Yeah the mind will follow. And that's exactly what you've experienced at Sudoksa and, and other temples, Tojin Sunam. Yeah. Tojin Sunam, be first say he's not awakened, but he, even though he's 60 years old, been a monk, I think for 40 years, he has a master. Mm-hmm. And that master is the awakened one. And, and his master was awakened before him and they guided. So Tojin Sunam's behavior is quite wonderful. It's very simple and straightforward, but it's wonderful, right? You feel like you're in the presence of somebody that actually cares about you. And what, we see him once every couple of years? (laughs) And we're treated like that uh, always by the people that we've developed relationships with there. And time, and, and again, you go there and everything is, provided for you. You just, you leave going, oh my God, what can I do? Well, my answer is return the debt by their supporting what they think is somebody practicing. 
right? So the way I pay my debt, at the very least, is to practice. Of course, like they do, if there's something I can, you know, provide for them, whether it's the, the you know, the green pills that we've sent over there periodically for their health or, or bring maple syrup when we travel, but it's minor compared to what they're able to provide to us. But they don't do it expecting anything in return. They just keep giving. I mean, if we had, I don't know how many monks we could dress here and nuns <laughs> from the clothing they've given us. So it is, it is coming back to the idea that creating a spiritual community is about creating a community where people are guided in functioning as if they're already awakened, not as if they want to get something when they come here, whether it's enlightenment or, uh, uh, you know, learn how to make a recipe or uh, some favorite job they like to do. That's not the point of getting something for yourself. It's always about giving. Danya paramita. It's the very first paramita, charity. That's really a good point. I, I recognize that in our own culture here, there is meditation, for example, has become wildly popular and often almost exclusively what you hear are the personal benefits mm. associated with it as if it's like a diet you know like yeah. a vegan diet or um, even yoga has really been stripped yeah. um, down to essentially a workout um, you know where people get together in a room and pay money to learn asanas yeah. and very far removed from the spirit of the original uh, world of yoga as a spiritual study, you know, an ascetic study. And I find the same is true with meditation practice. And so what you're presenting here, which I think is a really important thing to begin talking about and sharing, is that if someone comes to a Zen center or any center and they're, they're looking for more than stress relief, they're actually looking for relief of their Sorry. fundamental dissatisfaction with being alive, which we all have, then they're going to have to make an effort, and maybe it needs to start with an intellectual understanding that what they're taking up here is not a self-help remedy, you know, a temporary, uh, you know, like a, like a pill or a stress reduction exercise, but a fundamental rooting out of, a, of the delusion that they are a permanent being. Because what comes up for me as you're talking here is that you don't really have a choice as long as you are operating on the with the assumption that you are an independent being that is permanent and that who you are is what you see in the mirror this this per, this temporary being you really don't have a choice but to desperately try to cling to anything and everything that will make that being feel better and try to extend its lifespan. We'll try to make that, that real, and we know exactly. for a fact that that isn't who I am in, in the mirror. It, it's, it's the human body that I've acquired so that's for what, this journey. That's right, and that's what I'm, what I'm really inspired by with this conversation, is that 
it isn't that people are bad, it's that they, they, if they're operating out of ignorance, if they don't have the right view from the beginning, then they're, in, in a way, we have to act like an animal. We have to really invest everything we can in trying to make this thing that we think ourselves to be real. So it's so important to provide up front the, the important teaching, which is that fundamentally, we don't exist. We don't have an independent existence. We, we have, as a human being, we have a lifespan. But as a spiritual being, we don't. Correct. So that is what we have to be able to experience. So in a sense, what I think you're saying is that you can't be satisfied or fulfilled, and you can't, definitely can't help another being true, in a true way until you have awakened. Well, I think that, yeah, I agree. And I think that, I think this is a, this could be true, but I'm just, for, for a lot of people, but I'm just gonna say, uh, talk about myself when I first, uh, even, even before Zen, when I was in, a spiritual practice with what I thought was a spiritual teacher, and I, I still think that he was, uh, even though now I would consider him rather low level compared to what I've discovered, you know, later in, in my own uh, uh, path. But um, the thing that struck me 40 some odd years ago was that I got all kinds of accolades for the kind of life circumstances I had created. And you could call it in a modest way, successful. But what I could not deny that I was still suffering. And I realized that what it was that up to that time, I was in complete denial that I was in fact suffering. Well, of course I wasn't suffering all the time. Sometimes I, in the act of doing something, I forgot myself and there wouldn't be any suffering, but always it returned. Mm. And often returned when I was alone. And a symptom is when I don't like to be alone. I'm like, wow, you can't be with yourself. I mean, how can you be with anyone else? Right. So having that kind of thought is what took me to start looking, mm. that I could no longer deny the suffering. And it doesn't end immediately when you start a spiritual practice like Zen. I mean, a lot of people will think they're suffering, uh, you know, having to sit long hours or work long hours or uh, whatever we do that that's uh, kind of considered monotonous and repeating the same thing over and over again. And and if we if as we do we come with the same mind, that becomes a new suffering. Mm -hmm. But what you need to recognize about that, that that's the suffering that leads to liberation. Mm. That there's no liberation outside of sentient beings. Outside of suffering. Outside of sentient beings. Right? Which like, means suffering? Yeah. But sentient beings are also Buddhas. Mm. 
right? That it, that it takes, if you go into a dark room and you flip a light switch, it's immediately light, lit. Right. That's how short a distance it is from the suffering soul to the enlightened soul. Right. Like people think, oh, it's all this hardship. It's only hard as long as you're willing to make it hard for yourself. Well, that's really beautiful, Sunam. And I wonder if you could break down the relationship between awakening and this tradition we have in Zen of sitting long hours or sitting in general. Because I think that has, for many people, come to symbolize Zen practice is the practice of sitting on a mat, mm, crossing agree. your legs and taking a posture. And so even in my own case, no doubt, I really value that practice. But I also see that there is an inherent, you know, I don't want to have to, my awakening shouldn't depend on any particular form that my body would take. So could you talk about that relationship for yourself and how that's evolved? Well, you know, I'm, I was, wasn't really uh, very interested in history till I, uh, I started practicing uh, a spiritual life and particularly Zen. So I probably read more widely about uh, Zen history, especially the early history in places like Korea and China. And what I discovered, and sometimes when I go to Korea uh, and, and, and we're able to tell people how we're living in the West, on at least one occasion that I recall, a monk said to me, oh, that's the old style. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was that in the old in the old days, at the beginning of China, but I specifically know about Korea, the, the, the Koreans were discriminated against the Buddhists, especially the Zen Buddhists when they turned up because they'd had kind of a, a Buddhism of praying and getting merit and so forth for two or three hundred years when along came a Bodhidharma and 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 then and throughout the Tang, and then when it, it got to Korea, it came from uh, a monk that had traveled to China and became awakened and brought it back to Korea. Well, the entire li his entire lifespan, he had only very few disciples because people thought it was just too much for them. But what they did is they built their own temples they grew their own vegetables, and they pr provided their food. They they sewed their clothes. They mended their clothes. In other words, they were self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. They didn't spend. They couldn't spend all their time in the meditation hall. Right. So, and and that went on. I'm not exactly sure how long, <clears throat> but clearly at some point, there's almost nothing more to do. The money's coming in. And so what do you do? And it isn't unusual that a solution to that is that to, to sit. And, but any Zen teacher will tell you, the awakened ones that I've met, not one of them awakens sitting in meditation. 
Well, here in this story that you just shared with us, Master Wanhyo had had nothing to do with his sitting practice. Right. It was, uh, in a sense, the sincerity of looking for the truth that brought him to awakening. Well, and, and risking his life. Right. I mean, the when you read about, you know, more deeply about Wanhyo, mm -hmm. you realize that he wasn't the first Korean to travel, but... But some of the bones and some of the, the carcasses that they found were other spiritual seekers that were either, you know, in some cases devoured by wild beasts. This is like there was nobody protecting them. Exactly. And they had to go on foot hundreds and hundreds of miles right. to get to China. So you realize the courage that that took, right. uh, as you pointed out, to look for the truth. Right. And so whether you do that sitting on your mat, uh, I think can cause the problem that you've outlined is that people associated associate that with successful Zen or probably a lot of things where these long sittings are uh, completely necessary. And I, I think that even in Korea, yes, there are long sittings in the winter and summer, but you're encouraged in the spring and the autumn, especially as you have, have you trained, to visit other teachers, to, to seek the truth. Right. It's not in the hands of any one person. And so, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's, a, it's what happens institutionally when you get big. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could look at the Catholic Church, right? And they, they've done the same thing in my entire lifetime with people, the people that come, but yet... Thomas Merton, for example, was in a Trappist monastery and lived one of the most austere lives. And they didn't sit. They they studied and they they worked the fields. And he, in his case, yeah. he wrote. Right. And but he also traveled extensively, always with the same idea in mind: discovering the truth for yourself. But as Wanyo pointed out, all those travels are completely unnecessary if you find out where it's coming from and recognize that no matter what walk of life you're in, you can seek the truth in every situation. Absolutely. Sincerity matters. Yeah. Sincere, a sincere mind is, is necessary, and that's the mind that's not going to hide behind a perfect life. In a sense, Again, I wasn't conscious of thinking I was living behind a perfect life, but that's how I was perceived by others because yeah. we look at people and, oh, look at that. He's done all that. But we don't know in their private times mm -hmm. what it's like, but we hear of suicides. We hear of people sure. taking drugs and alcohol just to, just to cope. Yeah. Right? Something's wrong, and, and I think... Zen isn't the first to discover it. We're right. certainly not the first in this culture. But what's wrong is what's wrong with us. Yeah, so it's. I think it's really profound that it's fair enough that meditation and even Zen or Buddhist philosophy can ease the, the suffering or the dissatisfaction that someone experiences physically or mentally, emotionally. But it also offers for, for those of us that are looking for, in a sense, a, a deeper um, relief, a fundamental relief than 
we have to really examine more carefully this assumption we have, uh, like I was expressing to you after the story, even after years and years of practice, I recognize that my mind can easily jump to seeing things outside of myself as the cause of my difficulty. And so it really does humble me to recognize that it doesn't matter what so-called spiritual experiences I may think or not think I've, I've had, having a human body means I have karma. And every day my five senses are going to give rise to thoughts and feelings and well, you're the result of your karma, not right. only in this life, right. which we can sort of locate, but in previous lives. Right. That's actually, it's the karma that yeah. caused this whole episode of, of this birth. Right. And we can't remember that, but we have some recollection of when we were 20 years old or, or 10 years old, yeah. and all the things that, uh, all the suffering, and I think... Uh, the suffering is important to recognize it, to recognize that you are not built to suffer. You're built to love and care, mm -hmm. have compassion and, and wisdom about how to live. We're built and, open. Yeah. And, and, it's and the, it really is, it seems to me, that the pollution, the polluting effect is the thinking. You know, so, for example, when I wake up in the morning, I'm, I wake up and I'm open. There's nothing there. Everything that comes after that is produced by thought. Well, be careful on this one now. I want to make sure that this is clear to people. Thought doesn't stop until you die. What has to stop before you die to awaken is attachment to thought. Right. In other words, when it comes up, it's fine to see it. Right. But if it's not to act on, right? right? When you know when to act on a thought or, or a feeling, right. but, but once you don't act... It's not immediate. And, let, and then you start thinking about the thought or you think about the feeling. Right. This is the attachment. So the attachment to thought or feeling is the development of the thought and the feeling. Exactly. And we, what we say is that when we're not attached to thought, that is the meaning of no thought. Right. That's exactly right. So it occurred to me, listening to your story, it was great because I think for the rest of my life, regardless of what practice I do or don't do, or what awakening I have or don't have, this is going to have to be uh, refined. This is yeah. going to have to be cultivated. And so I think that this Western idea we have of awakening and all suddenly all the troubles are done, it just doesn't work like that. You, it just doesn't work that well, way. Well, I think that you're right. Like the troubles are still going to come, right. but it's the way that you embrace them. Right. And you, in a sense, you massage them into something that is a lot better than what it was before you uh, had the mind that could embrace it and then work with it. Sounds very creative. Well, of course. I mean, what's more creative than producing these bodies? <laughs> Well, I really appreciate that point, so maybe that'd be a good place to stop. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank you.